0: Everybody and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. My name is Trevor. I'm here with Mark. How you feeling, Mark?
1: Uh, today I kind of feel like I'm playing Sudoku on a roller coaster. How are you feeling?
0: Uh, I feel like I'm back in action because I was I actually took the big risk and flew to the East Coast at the beginning of September. And I was there visiting my grandpa's house and everything visiting with family but what would have been a one-week trip turned into three weeks because of quarantining and yeah (laughs) all that fun stuff so um now it's like a return to normal life and i feel like i was on you know like a different planet for a little while
1: did you have to quarantine on the way back too or is that like not really a concern
0: no, it is. It is a concern. There there are people everywhere who can die. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean I knew you were you're visiting people on the east, but when you're in the west Right, yes. you're kind of the more isolated.
0: Is, well, West is a is a little more isolated and also my uh, the nephew one of my uh, family members, my nephew who is on the east coast, we need to be like very, very careful. Yeah. Um, because he's got a lot of allergies and a lot of different like health things. So it was like, there's no like room for error on that side of things. But on this side of things, it's just me and my wife working from home and going into the office with way less people. So yeah, a little bit less of a concern.
1: Okay, cool. But yeah, on uh, one of the rare vacations of this year. <laughs> I yeah, just, I, I don't felt think like it's, it's happening like much.
0: It felt like the summer of George. Yeah. It was- like wow there's no excuse for
1: it it was
0: like it's a very rare excuse like in adult life to be like i'm not i'm gonna be away from everything for a month
1: yeah (laughs) um
0: but had to be done um so yeah i mean our game today is our intro in our game is basically based off this article that I found. And before we started recording, Mark, you said that I was gonna do a whole thing about how I don't know how to say this woman's name, but say the name and then I'll go backwards from there.
1: It's the author, uh, Maza Mengaste. Yes, so
0: Maza Mengaste. I obviously got clickbaited into this article because the title of the article is Maza, Mangaste, Nazgard really doesn't need me as a reader. I can move on.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> so
0: that's that, This was an article in The Guardian and Maza herself is an Ethiopian, a, a, as it says on Wikipedia, is an Ethiopian American writer and author of the novels Beneath the Lion's Gage and The Shadow King, which was listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. So all roads lead back to the Booker Prize. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. Maybe more so that the Guardian. I think I think Guardian is the UK website. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, that makes more sense. But the way that this article is structured, it just set off a you know an alarm bell in my podcaster brain because it's a list listicle type article where it's just maza kind of saying it's like the book I'm currently reading, the book that changed my life, the book I wish I'd written, all these different things. So there's all these different categories, and I sent it over to you, and I said prepare your answers. And I guess we can just compare. Our yeah.
1: Comments. But uh, honestly, that, that, um that concept itself is it, like if, if I were to actually list it out, like the reason uh, my reasoning, if I ever were to become like famous, successful, whatever, I guess the first one would be the money <laughs> maybe, <Of course. laughs> but very, very close second is to be able to just be asked this, can you, you know, give me like, you know, just be famous enough so that you could do like, you know, like the amoeba records, like what's in your bag type thing, mm-hmm. like being yeah. able to do that and be like, this is what I like. And like, people mm-hmm. are going to actually care what I say, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> but this, this is, is so kind of like that. Care. It's like, list out all like these awesome books that change your life. Like no one's going to ask me that question. I have to be famous to like, get to that point. <laughs>
0: Well, you're just famous enough to have a podcast so that we can go over it.
1: Yeah, now I can share and practice for that day. <laughs> yes, <laughs> rehearsal. Rehearsal
0: for fame. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we went through all these different things. And uh, so, so basically, the only one that we won't be able to share with each other is the book that we're currently reading, because that would kind of mess up the podcast, I think.
1: Yeah, my answer is nothing, because I just finished my... Uh, What I'm going to talk about today.
0: Oh, okay. So you're currently reading nothing. So the next thing up was a book that changed my life.
1: Correct? Yes. All
0: Mm -hmm. right. And what did you put from that? No.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, So this is one that I've gone back and forth on covering in an episode, doing a report on it. Could never figure out how to do it. And I think I've given up on it enough to where I can just reveal it here. Uh, and <laughs> okay. this this is a big this is kind of a big deal for me to reveal it's one I hold close to the chest like and it, for no, no real reason it's just kind of one of those things but there's a really old self-help book from the early 1900s that was definitely life-changing for me hmm. um, and it's kind of it's very strange it's it's super old but the concept is very true to any era you know it's written in that sort of way where it's not specific to any any time mm-hmm. period but it's called The Human Machine by Arnold Bennett. It's a okay. British author and you know it's a lot of florid language and stuff but for like a self-help book but what it essentially boils down to is that you should remind your brain that you're in charge, you know, cuz the most part for the most part you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and that's I guess its main takeaway is that you should, you know, meditate a little bit each day on the fact that you are in control of your brain and like you know you make the decisions that it's not you know no one to blame but yourself sometimes when you you don't do things that are good for you i guess um mm. but anyways you know I love the way that he writes the short short little read it's a uh just kind of a self one of the first self-help books I've ever seen and Um, I adapted a lot of like kind of the motivational stuff he has to be a more efficient person into my, into my own life. I I kind of felt like he was a kindred spirit when I first read it as I was probably 19 or 20 when I found this book.
0: Damn, that sounds awesome. I mean, my change, my life is not nearly as deep. You just stole the show. (laughs) (laughs) That my change of my life is uh, is a very obvious like I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I guess I was also thinking in terms of of reading kind of and like a book that changed my life in a reading sense is definitely the Hobbit. I've I've told you before that The Hobbit to me was like a book that I got from one of those scholastic book review like you know, purchase like buy from school or whatever type yeah. of thing. But it was like the first book where it was like, OK, you've now received like a real book. What are you going to do with it? And it's like that was like one of the first times where it was like, oh, like I read this thing cover to cover and enjoyed it more than just, you know, than just like, oh, I was assigned something.
1: Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, I, I put The Hobbit. But I want to check out The Human Machine. I feel like I need to know Mark a little. I mean, you are a bit of a human machine. So, I think that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the guy, I mean, he he talks about the metaphor of the human machine being like cuz it's 1900s it's like these people they have these crappy you know pre-Model T like <laughs> right. vehicles that like you have to maintain and stuff and he's like he's like, yeah, the, you know, the the inquiring mind or whatever he'll spend days and whatever fixing these certain things and he but he doesn't treat his own body and mind the same way you know they let things lapse and you know you don't know, perform maintenance and stuff like that and i don't know i guess i i view things that way sometimes
0: yeah i want to be sure there's an old Seinfeld joke, like a '90s Seinfeld joke, that he says, uh, "If your if your bar if your body was a used car, you wouldn't buy it because it's too much maintenance."
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's that, and it's um, he wrote a lot of novels too. I'll cover him eventually, but I couldn't figure out how to get this book in there. He also <laughs> wrote a, another one very similar called "How to Live on Twenty Four Hours a Day." Oh, that makes it's sense. It's about kind of time management and stuff. Cool. But uh, Uh, let's move on. What's the next question?
0: The next one is the book you wish you had written, um, which I guess is kind of probably more appropriate for when Maza Mangaste, you know, she, she, the Guardian, comes to her as an author and says, What do you wish you had written? Um, But the book I said, I wish I had written just in general in life is that I I kind of feel like uh, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is like, I wish I had written that because I feel like at first I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, like what you said at the beginning, like the whole money thing. It was just like, I wish I was J.K. Rowling. like <laughs> <laughs> And then I thought about it and I was like, well, do you really want to be J.K. Rowling in the sense of like, she probably like can't really walk down the street, no. you know, like she's on a different level. Whereas I feel like the fans of Douglas Adams would be like really chill.
1: And would he would so, just yeah.
0: He- and he would just be really like funny, and I I just wish I was as funny and clever as him. So, and and also like ultimate bragging rights. If you've written Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is like, <laughs> like that's beyond Harry Potter bragging rights. I yeah,
1: think. definitely. Uh, my answer for that's kind of similar, just because I hung on to the uh, I admire you know cleverness, mm. and my answer was one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I wish I okay. wrote that. Because Ken Casey, just, you know, super clever writer. And I admire that a lot. And I think it's more my jealousy of like how his life went. Like when I, I,
0: I don't know I, what that, like, I, I know
1: just enough mean. about his life to be like jealous or whatever. Like he was a champion, like high school wrestler or something, something like that. He was like a state champ wrestler. And then he like hung out with the, uh, the whole crew there with the electric electric kool-aid acid test you know oh he he did all that stuff and then he like went and worked at a hospital and out of that he wrote this incredible book and yeah i don't know so that's my answer
0: (laughs) (laughs) nice and what's the next one the next one also makes more sense for authors
1: the book that had the greatest influence on my writing
0: Yes, what what has had the greatest influence on on your writing?
1: On my okay, I, I couldn't really answer this seriously. So, I think I said, um, you know, seeing as most of my writing nowadays is, well, I guess most of it's honestly work emails. But most of my writing outside of work is just dumb jokes and puns through text. So I'd have to say like exactly. Mad Libs or the Far Side <laughs> the Far Side collection. Crack Magazine, magazine
0: maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mad Mad Magazine. Crack.
0: It actually is kind of sad. Like, you're touching on something that's very real, where it's like, be, you know, have you ever thought about, I think we talked about it before, too, like, um, Best Places to Read. I think we talked about, like, reading on the John, you know, and stuff like that, Yeah. And, like, how, how much you can really get done, like, reading a book just, like, in the bathroom. And what's funny is that if you if you put together how many text messages you've written, it would be like the world's longest novel. <laughs> <laughs> like if we could only sit down and read and write one sentence a day for like the, the world's greatest novel. I mean, I, I might have just come up with an idea. Yeah. But, you know, but all of your texts, you know, are just like gifs and like jokes. and Yeah.
1: You know. Yeah, I wonder if there are any really crazy uh, text Group texts out there with like a bunch of authors, or like even be. just a couple, couple authors, you know.
0: It could be. You, we we do we do know that Zadie Smith is a fan of NASGARD and it would be like fascinating if there was like you know, if we hacked into the Apple <laughs> frame. <laughs> I'm sure that will happen someday. I've talked about this with people before about how, like, really humans don't really have any respect for the dead. You know, like, you can buy books of, like, Mark Twain's love letters and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that's what I, like, that was uh, what I covered uh, a few episodes ago with Oscar Wilde. It was, like, not meant to be released. That's, like, his journal from him using his prison it's like i'm sure
0: in the future there could be like this is the book of tweets or like you know direct messages on instagram back and forth between salman rushdie (laughs) uh, (laughs) um i didn't really have an answer to like an influence on my writing either just because i haven't really written much but i guess i could say i have written screenplays
1: Mm -hmm. and what, what influenced that
0: uh so i've written a few short films and stuff like that and there is um an author who wrote the uh the movie named called network his name is patty chayefsky he wrote like plays and uh he wrote the movie network and he's just amazing and that's someone who like we studied in school as like a screenwriter nice so if anybody he also wrote some i think a play called gideon so patty chayefsky
1: do you ever write any novels?
0: I don't think so. I, don't, I think I would be on top of that. If yeah. He, did. he also wrote a movie called Altered States, which is like really awesome. Cool. Um, so next category, Mark, what's a book that changed your
1: mind? Wait, no, I think you skipped one. Uh, the think the book that's most underrated. Oh, ooh, I did.
0: So what's your book that's most underrated?
1: Uh, I have a few here. Uh few that i thought of a couple that i've covered um titus groan by mervyn peak that was the gorman gas trilogy that kind of fantasy gothic yeah. fantasy
0: yeah that's
1: super that's underrated
0: like, there's someone who loves this podcast who has a good twitter account about gorman gas
1: yeah yeah, yeah. um like a very fascinating thing uh it's just as imaginative and captivating than anything in fantasy that's popular today so i feel like you could swap it out it just kind of maybe chance or what are some other reason that it's that it's not (laughs) but there's an alternate
0: universe somewhere out there where exactly this is like lord of the rings
1: yeah yeah exactly and then another one that i covered was uh early on Obaba koic by bernardo achaga that was the um basque novel mm. uh and that was just the thing why i say it's underrated is i just i feel like i'm sort of tuned into you know what's people revere and whatnot for a little bit i just happened to find that book by chance though i never heard about it anywhere and i feel like it could definitely be the sort of thing that bookstores should push on you or you know make a make a staff choice or something you know right one of those highlighted books
0: yeah my underrated book was um also one that i have covered on the podcast before um i talked about that book the sparrow yeah um by mary doria russell i just think like again something that's like i i that book came into my life because it was like in a high school friend like their mom had it or whatever and i was like what's this and i just like started reading it but it's like this incredibly deep, like sci-fi story about, you know, religion and sci-fi and aliens and stuff. And it's like, why isn't this more popular? I mean, it's like, seems like one of those things. Now that everything is being made into a movie, it's like, when will they get to the Sparrow?
1: Yeah, I'm sure someone <laughs> has
0: optioned it as a book for some reason. Yeah. And I remember I told you, I also uh, emailed the author and she emailed Yeah.
1: Me. Yeah. I know. I could see that. I could see that as underrated, the way you kind of described it. Like, yeah. way more, way more people have played Mass Effect than have <laughs> read The Sparrow. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> exactly. No. Exactly. <laughs> like that's the same. Uh, the same audience should apply Mass Effects and The Sparrow.
1: Yeah. Uh, I had one, I had one more, and it was an older one, uh, as far as an underrated classic. I think Frankenstein's underrated as far as like a philosophical novel about the human condition. You know, from the view of outside,
0: like, you're saying it's like too focused on the monster,
1: yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, those who have read it know know that, but I think like it's a it's, uh, uh, stance among people who haven't read it, or you know, their preconceived opinions are probably influenced by like Frankenberry and, Barry and <laughs> the monsters <laughs> and whatever, like every other random depiction of a of Frankenstein's monster. But it's so good.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, what's a book that changed your mind?
1: Modern Prometheus. Uh Changed My Mind. That's a weird question. It is. Because um Mangaste said like uh, you know, a book about Che Guevara, like a revolution Re- Guevara, a revolutionary life by John Lee mm-hmm. Anderson. And uh I guess I haven't read enough nonfiction i'm just like a a fiction addict right but my answer to that was totally different i I would just say that the the brothers karamazov by dostoevsky changed me changed my mind as far as reading you know returning to big challenging novels after high school and kind of getting me interested in reading again Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I kind of saw the question in two ways at the same time, because when someone says, what's a book that changed your mind? I think of all my friends who it's like, oh, I know like a bunch of people who read like the most recent book of the day about like, you know, too big to fail and like, you know, like stuff (laughs) like that, like. Like yeah. <laughs> rage by about Trump and like stuff like that. Like all these different, like massive novels, like not novels, but nonfiction things about current events.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: that's where your mind goes like, Oh, I ch- really changed my mind about the 2008 crash or like something like that. Um, But the thing that I could think of, which is probably going to be a spoiler at some point in the podcast, but that's fine. Um, I'll just say, a book that changed my mind was the, um, autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, not really like, Oh, it changed my mind, like views about Malcolm X or anything, um, or like race in general, but just like, again, it's like one of those things, like you said, with the brothers K where it's like, like reading that particular point in history was like, uh, everything is like, you know, it's not as flat as the photograph. You know, the black
1: yeah.
0: ref. So I have read the, the biography of Malcolm X and it's nuts as hell. <laughs> um, so it changed my mind.
1: Nice. I saw like this stupid, uh, <laughs> just a screenshot of like a, a dumb kind of redneck Facebook post. And they referred to him as Malcolm 10. They didn't know better <laughs> Malcolm, or Mal, Malcolm the Malcolm the tenth
0: Malcolm 10
1: yeah <laughs> that's Damn. pretty embarrassing um next they need question to
0: read the, they need to read the model biography of Malcolm 10
1: yeah <laughs> uh, and the next question is the last book that made me cry right and so I said I can't I honestly can't remember ever crying from a book I don't know if I have that Close of a connection, but I like so I ended up replacing my answer with what was the last movie that made me cry.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: cause that's what, and it was actually a recommendation from you, uh, probably f- five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. D- uh, a documentary called Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father. <sighs> Do you remember that one?
0: Yeah, Dear Zachary is fucked up,
1: it's an in- intensely sad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really scary.
1: I don't know why. Really sad. Yeah. Uh, What about you? So
0: mine kind of goes, I have the same kind of thing where it's like, I have, I haven't really read any books where I just started crying or whatever, but I have one very specific memory and this makes no sense. But I remember like just being overcome with emotion and crying during, do you remember those books? There's an author named Brian Jacks who writes the red wall series. Yep. And those red wall books, I don't remember which one I was reading or any specific event or anything that was like part of any of those books. But I do remember, I have a very specific memory sitting in the, my childhood home, the home that I grew up in, sitting on the couch next to the window. And when I was reading one of those books, I started to cry and I like, the memory wasn't about the event in the book. It was like, how did that happen? Like I like cried because of this and I was like, what? <laughs> like didn't even think that that was possible kind of thing
1: <laughs> interesting
0: so i was you know i don't remember the the memory it's not the memory of the book that stuck with me it's like the idea that something could make me cry was like uh i don't know what's happening <laughs>
1: yep. and i, I can see it really um i could see a kid crying because like they know they can never be part of this red wall universe with like you know to be in a, a you can't fit in those little uh mole tunnels or whatever.
0: And they have such good food down there. Why can't Yeah, I do,
1: exactly? Why can't I, I do don't. it? Um, what's a book that made you laugh? Uh the last one I read was uh The sellout, Paul Beatty. That one was super funny.
0: And you know what? I was anticipating that you might say that. So I also said another Paul Beatty book, The White Boy Shuffle. That shit made me laugh. <laughs>
1: nice yep that's on my list for the future oh yeah how that's about kinda, a book that one might even be funnier than the cell yeah so the next question here was one that it was the one that you know was the clickbaity uh headline and right. so the book the book you couldn't finish and so Mengaste said uh Guard's my struggle series i I kept trying, and then I asked why he really doesn't need me as a reader. I can move on. Which, I mean, is true.
0: Also, an interesting way to think of yourself as participating in, like, this person doesn't need me as a reader. I don't really, like, you know, see it that way. Like, yeah, it's true that Nasgard doesn't need me as a reader, probably, either. But I still was addicted.
1: Yeah, I mean, she already bought the book, though. She so he, Exactly. He, or borrowed it or or whatnot so So, he he stays winning
0: yeah a book that i couldn't finish was and i think i've said this before as like it's the ultimate insult to a book is i couldn't finish atlas shrugged by ayn rand and i got like 500 pages in so it's a pretty serious (laughs) statement to just like be like fuck
1: this (laughs) yeah i think there's just for me there's just too many to count Cause there's a lot where I'll just like try it over and over again, it just never works. Like, uh, yeah, a couple of Gaddis novels and stuff. I just like can never, yeah. get my. Um, I will someday, but I just can't now. Yeah, how come <laughs> Gaddis
0: like doesn't like get it? Like, Gaddis is like one of those guys where it's supposed to be like, if you've read Pynchon, then I've got well, something
1: for you. Yeah, but he doesn't have. He doesn't have a uh, Crying of Lot Forty Nine. He doesn't. He doesn't seem to have an easy. Uh-huh. entry like you really need to be on a have some momentum going.
0: Yeah you need to be like I wanna be reading.
1: Yeah the recognitions is just yeah it was too hard to for me to get through mm-hmm. uh someday though and so the next question is the book I'm ashamed not to have read.
0: Yeah the book I haven't read that I'm ashamed.
1: And so I actually agreed with Megastay here. She said, Moby Dick, each year I keep saying I will, each year something prevents it. It's now my 2021 goal. So I'm going to go along with her on that. I think Moby Dick will be on my 2021 reading list or maybe the end of 2020. We'll see.
0: Mm, very good. How about you? Um, This is a shame I haven't read, right? yes i'm i'm ashamed that i haven't read the like new dark tower book
1: that stephen king wrote wait the keyhole one yeah oh (laughs) it's like yeah i read that i read that yeah yeah, it's like 2008 i think there was like (laughs) a whole saga
0: of our lives where we were like obsessed with the dark tower and we like read it close to the same time as each other yeah and then yeah i like as soon as i saw that ashamed you haven't read it i was like i haven't i still haven't read that
1: new dark tower book and it's like really short too i know the wind through the keyhole well i can let you know it was pretty cool it doesn't add or take away anything from the you know the the story it's basically but it basically starts out with like roland sits down at like they're at a campfire with everyone, the content. And he's like, let me tell you a story. And then Mm -hmm. it's the story. And that's it of him. Something he did earlier. Mm -hmm. It's pretty good.
0: That's like, that's like one or two of the other books as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess he could just keep doing that.
0: Isn't wizarding glass, like all like him doing that.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. What book do you give as a gift?
1: You know, I don't, I think I would say Phantom Tollbooth is my go-to just for like giving to people to either inspire them to pick up reading again, like to view it as something that is like fun through the eyes of like a child or or just giving it to children and like in my family or whatever. But to be honest, I don't usually gift books because sometimes I don't trust that they'll be read or, you know, I'd rather give someone maybe a gift card to choose their own books or something.
0: Dude, we're on the same wavelength. Once again, the gift that I give is a gift. The book I give as a gift is the Phantom Tollbooth. And it's specifically for like children. Like, oh, like your kid was born or your kid is like super young. And it's like, well, here's the Phantom Tollbooth. Hopefully they read it and become awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's just like a reminder or, you know, initiation into reading being fun Mm -hmm. and interesting, so.
0: So, dude, what's a, a what book would
1: you like to be remembered for that you've already written? <laughs> this, yeah, this one doesn't make sense for me. I and I just no answer. I, I the one I haven't made yet. I guess.
0: Yeah. I said my future first novel, which defines literature in the twenty first century.
1: Yeah, <laughs> defines. <laughs> yeah. So the next one was my earliest reading memory, mm-hmm. and Mengaste said Jack and Jill, and she said it's also her first earliest introduction to violence in literature when poor Jack broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. Horrifying reading for a child. I didn't even know that
0: that was an actual book. I thought it was just like a oral tradition to say the rhyme or whatever.
1: Yeah. If it's a book, it's like three pages. Right. Mine's kind of similar to hers just because it was horrifying. I think one one of the earliest I remember is that I had an illustrated version of the time machine. HG Mm -hmm. Wells and the Morlocks were way too scary on it. Like they didn't make them any, like they didn't soften them a little bit for a children's book. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't soften them enough. Yeah. Yeah. How about you?
0: Uh, I said, um, I think I've mentioned this book on the podcast before where it's like there was a children's book that my mom would read to me where a young kid has like an orange cat and they get into like this mischief or whatever and I can really only remember the pictures but that's got to be the earliest memory. I don't even remember the words.
1: Yeah, you couldn't find it, I remember.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've never been able to find it. And sometimes I type like really weird things into Google to try to find it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it's not easy to find because it's like, if you type in you know mischief like kid with mischievous cat it's like the cat in the hat you know yeah <laughs> like think they're, they're, it's it's like really hard to find so i think it might be lost to time mm-hmm. or it's going to be one of those things where it's like i see it in some you know goodwill bin when i'm in my 80s and i
1: have a stroke or something <laughs> yeah you're going to say the name on your deathbed yeah <laughs> I figured it out
0: rosebud <laughs> nice
1: so th- last question here is my comfort read and do you do you have a comfort read is that it's a
0: strange question because i'm not i i don't return multiple times to different books like over and over so the only one i could say is that i have read the hobbit several times so i i i end where i began book changed my life and it's also my comfort read
1: nice i think my Yeah, I just kind of thought that maybe Stephen King was a good comfort read author, and I couldn't <laughs> figure out the book, but thinking about it now, maybe The Talisman, hmm. the one that he did uh, with Peter Straub, that one rules, yep. and I'd say it's a good comfort read. I know where it's going. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Got the short chapters, little... Uh, I don't know, like comfort food.
0: Sweet. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll link the article on Twitter, Maza Mengistay, um, and you can see her answers. I will also give a spoiler. Like, she mentions several books throughout the article, so it's not too much of a spoiler, but I bought a book because of that article. So I will be checking. Something out that she mentioned in there, and' probably covering in the podcast in the future,
1: nice, and we'll wait for nasgard's response, yes, <laughs> to kick off the uh the author beef,
0: <laughs> not too many author beefs.
1: We'll have to like link it to him too, make sure he right. sees it <laughs> just yes, to start 40, the pot a little Thursday. bit, yes,
0: yeah, um. So- I- All right. Well, I think I'm, am I first or are you first?
1: I think I'm first this time. All right. So I'll jump right into it. And of course I got to start weird. Uh, When, when would you say is the best time to plant a tree?
0: I know nothing about gardening. So let me just logic myself into it right now where it's basically like, so a tree needs like a bunch of water to grow. I feel like it's gonna be some trick answer like at the end of winter going into spring. So it like has water, but then like has lots of sunlight to grow.
1: Uh, And it's more of a trick answer than you guessed. Uh, The answer is 20 years ago. Oh, shit. (laughs) And then the next best time is right now. Uh, And then, (laughs) so that's a little joke that was in this book. But another question, following up do you have a favorite tree in the world is there a tree that sticks out to you or maybe a good tree related memory you know growing Um, up
0: yeah there's a few trees that i would routinely climb in my childhood yard um but a favorite tree uh yeah there's a few there's a i have a current favorite that's outside of a laundromat near me right now that's just like yeah, I think tree? one of my well no not a palm tree I think one of my favorite things about trees in general is that sometimes you have to like reconsider how large they are like yeah like you're going along in your business and then it's like if you actually look at that tree it's like the size of a, like a like a like a small building
1: like yeah three
0: four story size so there's one outside my laundromat that's like a huge like if you really look at it it's like oh that's the size of like a five-story building
1: Nice. um yeah, it's a really nice tree. Have uh, you uh, visited the Redwoods? I have California. not.
0: It's on. It's definitely on the, you know, now that we're way closer to those, it's definitely on our goal list.
1: Nice. Yeah, I've always wanted to see those. Um, as far as my connection to trees, though, when I was thinking about it, you know, my family on both sides really used to used to make our own maple syrup by mm-hmm. tapping, you know, tapping the maple trees every year and hanging buckets on them and all that. And it really used to amaze me how you could do it every single year reliably you know with the same trees they could still give they were it wouldn't kill them just like kind of donating blood for a person basically you know the the wound heals up or whatever and just the sheer amount of sap that would come out because uh you know you need a lot of it to make maple syrup do you know how how many gallons of sap do you think you need to make one gallon of syrup
0: It's not, it's actually more than, I, I would think that you would need less syrup to, like less sap to make more syrup. No. No, opposite?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you have a lot more knowledge syrup, in this area. Syrup is concentrated. Sap is like almost water. It's like, sap is like a, almost sugary water. And then you boil oh. it, you boil it down. You You evaporate all the water, it turns into syrup, so... It's actually 40 gallons for one gallon of syrup.
0: God damn. Humans are fucked up. <laughs>
1: but it's, it's so <laughs> how good. How we though. use resources. Um, no, that's worth it. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. you no, you gotta, you'd have to see how much comes out of a tree though. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, you know, that's one connection, but I'm also just a huge fan of the utility of trees and wood and, I basically worked in like a deck, decked out wood shop for for quite a while in high school and college, like six years, and I'm pretty handy with all those tools. I'm you know a big fan of also a big fan of a good wood stove in the winter and you know chopping wood in preparation for that.
0: Dude, once once you know wood or see what like masters can do with it, it's like mind blowing.
1: Yeah, nice. Have you ever had a good uh, wood stove in a house or a fireplace?
0: I've I've had I had a fireplace when I was little first house I grew up in. But yeah, I, I've I've had many happy memories of wood
1: stoves. Nice. Yeah, me too. Um it's one of the only one of the good things about winter. But so if you can't tell already, I read a book about trees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> so I <laughs> I had I had seen the cover of this book felt like a million times since it came out, but that was only two years ago, really. And I wanted to see if you had seen it as well. Can you look up the overstory by Richard Powers? Tell me if the I've, I've heard of it. Yeah, you've definitely seen the cover. I've I've like kept seeing it over and over again. I was like, all right, I gotta try try this one out.
0: Is it the one where it's like circles within circles?
1: Yep. And it's you know, the woods in the background. Mm-hmm. So yep. uh again, all all roads lead to the man booker prize. This was shortlisted for the 2018 man booker, won the 2019 uh, Pulitzer for fiction. Uh, It's definitely a a dense, expansive novel. My copy was, uh, like 550 pages and I apologize for reading it so slow, (laughs) but I, (laughs) I refuse to cheat our listeners and only, you know, read like three quarters of it or half it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But essentially everything in this book comes back to trees. Um, there are lots of characters in it. It's pretty, like I said, it's very dense And the first half, you know, almost feels like it's more of a collection of short stories where every character in the book has shows their unique relationship to different types of trees or random tidbits about their life that concerns trees and nature. And eventually a lot of these characters intertwine later on. But I really honestly preferred it when they were when it felt more like short stories that were kind of weaving in and out. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that the main direction that the author took them all in at like once you're maybe halfway or two thirds through the book was good enough to fill the last part of it. And it kind of left me wanting more of the first part. Right. But uh, I'll detail a few of the the individual stories that are in this book. Um, First off, the one I like the most, there's a awesome section right in the beginning, that Hooks You in that talks about the chestnut tree specifically. And I would like to read it here to give you an idea of what this book is like. Um, this might be a little bit long, but we'll see. Uh, no, I think, I think I'll be all right. Now, uh, so here's kind of like almost, it's not the first first part of the book, but it's like five pages in or something. Now is the time of chestnuts. People are hurling stones at the giant trunks. The nuts fall all around them in a divine hail. It happens in countless places this Sunday from Georgia to Maine. Up in Concord, Thoreau takes part. He feels he is casting rocks at a sentient being with a duller scent than his own, yet still a blood relation. Old trees are our parents and our parents' parents, perchance. If you would learn the secrets of nature, you must practice more humanity. In Brooklyn, on Prospect Hill, the new arrival, Jorgen Hole, laughs at the hard rain his throes bring down. Each time his stone hits, food shakes down by the shovelful. Men dash about like thieves, stuffing caps, sacks, and trouser cuffs with nuts freed from their enclosing burrs. Here it is, the fabled free banquet of America, yet one more windfall in a country that takes even its scraps right from God's table. The Norwegian and his friends from the Brooklyn Navy Yard eat their bounty roasted over great bonfires in a clearing in the woods. The charred nuts are comforting beyond words, sweet and savory, rich as a honeyed potato, earthy and mysterious all at once the bird husks prickle but their no no is more of a their note is more of a tease than any real barrier the nuts to slip free of their spiny protection each one volunteers to be eaten so others might be spread far afield that night drunk on roasted chestnuts hole proposes to v V powies an irish girl from the pine framed row houses two blocks two blocks from his tenement on the edge of Fintown. No one within 3,000 miles has the right to object. They marry before Christmas. By February, they're Americans. In the spring, the chestnuts bloom again, long shaggy catkins waving in the wind like white caps on the glaucious uh, Hudson. Citizenship comes with a hunger for the uncut world. The couple assemble their movable goods and make the overland trip through the great tracts of eastern white pine into the dark beach forest of Ohio. Across the Midwestern Oak Breaks and out to the settlement near Fort Des Moines in the new state of Iowa, where the authorities give away land plotted yesterday to anyone who will farm it. Their nearest neighbors are two miles away.
0: Hmm. Seems like a very sort of like meditative within nature kind of thing. Yeah. Everything relates back to the surroundings kind of thing.
1: And at, yeah. Um, So that that was one part and I want to continue just on right after that. So uh, essentially what happens in between then and what I'm about to say is that they they find it very hard to uh, farm the land and survive the winters and everything. But then um, I'll jump back into it. That May, Hole discovers six chestnuts stuffed in the pocket of the smock he wore on the day he proposed to his wife presses them into the earth of western Iowa on the treeless prairie around the cabin the farm is hundreds of miles from the chestnut's native range, a thousand from this chestnut feast of Prospect Hill each month those green forests of the east grow harder for whole to remember, but this is America where men and trees take the most surprising outings whole plants, waters and thinks, one day my children will shake the trunks and eat for free hmm. and later on uh, kind of Tying this all together. 1,200 miles east, in the city where John Hole's mother so dresses and his father built ships, disaster hits before anyone knows it. The killer slips into the country from Asia in the wood of Chinese chestnuts destined for fancy gardens. A tree in the Bronx zoological park turns October colors in July. Leaves curl and scorch to the hue of cinnamon. Rings of orange spots spread across the swollen bark. At the slightest press, the wood caves in. Within a year, orange spots fleck chestnuts throughout the Bronx, the fruiting bodies of a parasite that has already killed its host. Every infection releases a horde of spores on the rain and wind. City gardeners mobilize a counterattack. They lop off infected branches and burn them. They spray trees with a lime and copper sulfate from horse-drawn wagons. All they do is spread the spores on the axes they use to cut the victims down. A researcher at the New York Botanical Garden identifies the killer as a fungus new to man. He publishes the results and leaves town to beat the summer heat. When he returns a few weeks later, not a chestnut in the city is worth saving. Death races across Connecticut and Massachusetts, jumping hundreds of miles a year. Trees succumb by the hundreds of thousands. A country watches dumbstruck as New England's priceless chestnuts melt away. The tree of the tanning industry of railroad ties, train cars, telephone poles, fuel, fences, houses, barns, fine desks, Tables, pianos, crates, paper pulp, pulp, and endless free shade and food. The most harvested tree in the country is vanishing. Hmm. So, yeah, that was so cool. So like, my
0: question is, do you know if that's, like, if he's picking apart, like, a real event?
1: Yeah, or... I, I, I believe that was a real uh, phenomenon with the chestnut tree. Hmm. Same thing, Hannah, I think the same thing happened with the elm tree. In New England, weird, but yeah. So that that's the kind of thing. Like I don't know, that drew me in in the beginning, like that sort of story, and then that ends up being you know this solitary field of, or you know, there's actually one chestnut tree that survives from that branch from that uh, bunch in Iowa, and that becomes kind of like a centerpiece for for one of the characters, mm-hmm. um, of a couple generations of uh, of this family taking care of this tree. But anyways, on top of that, uh, there's a bunch of other characters. You know, there's a large section about a, a child who is paralyzed after falling from a tree, and he ends up spending the rest of his life as a computer programmer. And he kind of develops this vision he has of an open world video game, hmm. uh, kind of like that's so weird because that's like
0: that's like one that's the subplot or whatever of the Knicks. These authors really obsessed with yeah, like a uh, MMO RPG type games
1: interesting hmm. yeah that 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 part ended up being cool um there's also a big part about a researcher named patricia westford and she kind of studies the spends her life studying the social aspect of trees and how they kind of communicate and how the root systems are you know so much wider than than the, the top of the trees show
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that part was really interesting too so there's why bun- don't you call it the understory <laughs> I don't know why it's called the overstory. Actually, I, well,
0: it. I'm getting the vibes that it's like they're above us, you know, like the yeah the, the overarching thing. He should he should have saved that section for the sequel and
1: called it the understory. Exactly. Maybe that's what he's working on. This was only two years ago. His book about mushrooms. Is yeah. Story. So um yeah, there are a bunch more characters, but eventually the like I said, the focus shifts from the individual to kind of the group and ends up being like a group of environmental activists who are trying to protect the redwood trees from being cut down. Hmm. Uh, So do you remember the Simpsons episode, uh, uh, Lisa, the tree hugger?
0: I will say no, because I'm critically undereducated in the Simpsons universe.
1: Okay, well, in this one, it's like a season 12 or something. So it's, you know, after the, the peak, but uh, essentially Lisa falls in love with like this radical environmentalist group leader tries to impress him by living in one of Springfield's oldest trees to keep it from being cut down. She kind of like chains herself to it. Uh, and so I found out that episode of the Simpsons was based on the story of the, like a real story of, a uh, American named Julia butterfly Hill, who lived in like a 200 foot tall redwood tree for 738 days. Wow. Basically two, two years, a little over two years in 1997 through 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of part of this book was drawn from that true story and maybe The Simpsons episode too. Mm-hmm. And so from then on, like like I said, like the second half of the book maybe wasn't my favorite, but I think th- I think this author threw some he trying to tried to add some quote unquote like weight to the story mm-hmm. that separates it from the original direction. And do you know what I mean by that? Like this story didn't have to be a this you know t- someone didn't have to die here, you know it like was just <laughs> like thrown it was just like thrown in there so it could you know be have more weight to it, I guess I, I don't really know, but I think a lot of people, when I read some reviews, a lot of people had the same sort of sentiment where it was an awesome story building. And then it kind of seems like he picks one direction that didn't follow through. So it's like
0: you're reading, reading, reading. And then he's like, now it's time to get serious.
1: Yeah, I guess it it just made it away from what I liked about the first part. Okay. So because of that, I'm changing up my Goodreads one-star review. I've got a three star review today because it summarized my feelings kind of exactly. Mm. And it's actually, it's actually from a fellow author, uh, Roxanne Gay. Have you heard of her? No, but, um, she's
0: a a fellow author throwing out three star reviews on Goodreads. On Goodreads. Yeah. She, she's like a big,
1: (laughs) she's a, a big name on Goodreads. That's awesome. But so, uh, so the review is this book has an interesting structure and is well written. I get what Powers is going for conceptually. The character sketches, which read like short stories, are wonderful. But then the book gets dot, 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 less engaging, shall we say. I stopped reading it because I just could not read one more passage of florid description about trees or visions or highways. I couldn't do it. But if you love trees, this is a good book for you. I get why it won the Pulitzer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's funny.
0: That's really funny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Coming from that, that's cool that, uh, you know, an author would be that candid about reviewing books on, on Goodreads.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I'm actually, I'm looking at her website right now and I've actually heard of this author. I've heard of her book, Difficult Women.
1: Yeah. Interesting. All right. So that was, uh, the overstory by Richard Powers from 2018.
0: Nice. All right, uh, I'll dive right into my thing. I think uh, mine is gonna be like a little bit shorter, but I kind of followed a rule that you began during our last episode. Um, so our last episode, you came to the table with uh, the sellout, Paul Beatty, and you said that it, it's sort of like the ultimate compliment when someone fully reads a novel that you suggested. Okay. So what do we got? I have I have fully read a novel that you have covered early on the podcast. Okay. That I had never read before. Uh, any guesses on to what you think I might have covered? There's I mean, sixty one this is episode <laughs> sixty-one, so you have sixty guesses.
1: I mean I hope it's uh, I hope it's the third policeman. It could be Warlock. It could be uh some virginia wolf could be I don't know did i get it <laughs> uh, uh, yeah
0: with your with your shotgun blast there you actually did mention the name of the author i covered to the lighthouse
1: oh by cool virginia wolf got
0: it yep. um so in episode 15 which we which we named the episode name that author it was the first time we played styles from nowhere yep Uh, and I went back and listened to your review again, um, after finishing, uh, to the lighthouse, which I read, uh, I mean, you'll understand, you know, how picture perfect this was, but, uh, you know, my grandfather's house, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, I visited for pretty much the majority of September, Um, you know, his house is on the beach in Connecticut, (laughs) there are like lighthouses and nature and and beautiful sunlight all around. So reading, uh, you know, to the lighthouse was like, there couldn't have been an easier, smoother place to read it. (laughs) I felt like I was, you know, inside the, inside the book, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't have too much to say to add on to your review from episode 15 other than, you know, what we had talked about back in that episode is that I didn't really know, like, how modern Virginia Woolf was. So, The, the Lighthouse comes out in 1927. I thought mm-hmm. she was, like, before that. And she carries on this sort of stream of consciousness tradition but i agree with you i, I agreed with episode 15 mark that like this it doesn't really feel like stream of consciousness it feels like very well planned stream of consciousness
1: yeah it's like a, a v- nice kind of volley with multiple yeah. points of view but i could
0: definitely see like this is not like oh I didn't really feel like, oh, like she went on a tangent and like that. And we're supposed to appreciate that she was in the heat of the moment. I It was more like very well thought out. Like this is like a well edited film, you know, of like, yeah, I'm choosing this. to I'm showing you this to kind of make you feel like this. And then I'm choosing this and only half a sentence here because of, you know, all these like, you know, very planned out things.
1: Yeah, um, I think I described it as, like, parkour, maybe. Well, you,
0: uh, yeah, you said parkour, and then you also <laughs> said psychological poetry,
1: which I thought oh, yeah. was
0: accurate. Yeah that's, a, yeah, that's a quote from you. Um, also, I learned a new term from the Wikipedia page for the, uh, for the book. It said, um, it's cited as a key example of the literary technique of multiple focalization, hmm. whatever that means. Um, I'm sure someone said that in like one article and then it becomes history because I've never heard of multiple focalization before, but I'm sure you can, you know, the term isn't rocket science. It's like, it's focusing on many things at once and kind of going back and forth. Um, yeah, so I mean, I found the book amazing. I definitely understood. Ever since you talked about it, I kind of wanted to read it, and then it was probably almost like probably like a year ago now, or a little bit less than a year that I was in a used bookstore and I saw To the Lighthouse, and I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, it was really easy to read. First of all, it was like really easy very short but also well broken up. You had talked about the section uh, the like the way that it is it has like a part 1 2 and 3 kind of thing. Yeah. And the there's not too part... much
1: not too much actually happens. The whole thing is like, "Hey, can we go to the lighthouse?" and then it's like, <laughs> "No, it's going to rain." And then then it's like this internal yeah. monologue warfare between the families like
0: <laughs> And one thing that you can cannot... Over just little thing things that... I thought was funny. So there's like all these characters, like the the mom and dad, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. But the other thing that's funny about to the lighthouse that like you it not really fully explained and you can't really figure it out, but it doesn't matter is like, did you did you like kind of realize like, why are there so many people in their house on this like one night? In this one night, it's, like, there's, like, a guy who lives upstairs, and then, like, another couple is coming over, and then, like, two of the, of Mr. Ramfizy's, like, sycophantic fans are also coming to dinner, and then there's, like, five different children.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all like, the kids, what? and, like, the yeah, painter, yeah. or whoever's gonna, like, show yeah, her L- how to L- paint. and
0: Lily Brasco, I think her name is, is, like, yeah. the painter. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a really cool book. It doesn't like hold your hand. It's kind of like going forward. I guess my review will be a little bit more spoilery than yours. So if you don't want this book spoiled then just go back, lead, listen to Mark's review on episode 15, but I can't believe you didn't mention that. Okay. So there's three parts of the book. There's the first part called the window. Then there's the second part called time passes. And then a third part called the lighthouse, Yep. And we had said in episode fifteen, which I think is totally true, is that the second part, time passes, is like basically Virginia Woolf describing like a time lapse, like shot of the family or like the house, even in the house,
1: like decaying. Yeah, that. Was... And like
0: I'm pretty sure time lapses like didn't exist, so she might be like the inventor of the time lapse if she wrote about it in <laughs> Um that might not be true, but still like it wasn't as like a thing that you see everywhere. But um, what I found interesting about that middle section is that she almost does like spoil her own book. I don't know if you remember, but it's like you set up all these characters, like she sets up Mr. And Mrs. Ramsey, a couple of their children, a few of uh, their friends and stuff that are over for dinner, that one pivotal night in their lives. And then in that time passes thing, it's like, Describing how the house is rotting away and how the beams of the lighthouse only hit it, you know, during these certain seasons. And like, you know, imagine like a seasonal time lapse. And then it's like, and then in one sentence it will be like, and that was when Mrs. Ramsey
1: died. And you're like, What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I thought that was intentional. It's just like, you know, because the third part of the book is like, oh, you know, we can pick up the pieces on what we wanted to do at the beginning. Yeah, yeah.
0: It is, but it's also funny because it's like the like the way that she kills off her characters is not in some like momentous thing. It's like she's describing, you know, like the moon rises and sets, you know, the leaves stir and then Paul gets hit by, you know, uh, like a shell in World War One. And that's why he died.
1: Yeah, I would. Yeah. And I would rather and, have that than what I was just describing with Richard Powers, where it's like now we have to make the whole book about someone dying. Like, right, yeah, you know.
0: Yep. But you also, you feel those deaths too, like even as short as, um, you know, to the lighthouse is, you definitely feel it. And then when it snaps back into reality for the third part, it's like, you know, Mr. I think there's a part where it's like, he's walking down the hallway and he like calls out her name or something. And you're like, damn, that's like fucked up. Like, yeah. Oh, she's like passed away now. And yeah, you, you definitely still feel it, even though the characters are like, not really that important.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and that was another reason why it was like so easy to read because it was like you learn pretty quickly. I think that like you don't really have to like know everything. It's just all about the experience. Yep. Um. So yeah, I mean, with like I like, like I said, I don't really have too much to say that to add to your review uh, of To the Lighthouse. But I thought it was awesome. I definitely want to read more of Virginia Woolf. I feel like the next title that really draws me in is. There, doesn't she have some book called like A Room of One's Own? Yes. That seems like a good title.
1: Is it One's Own or Her Own? I can't remember. But, um,
0: one zone Let me
1: see. Or... Um, I think Either way. One's Own. Either way. Yeah. Mrs. Dalloway. A Room of One's Own. Yep. Yeah. Jacob's Room and A Room of One's Own.
0: Yeah. That seems interesting to me. Um, But yeah, I I thought it was really cool. I I could feel the vibes from when you reviewed it that I would like it. So I was, I was into it and um, yeah. Oh, another thing that I wanted to mention, this is like completely off the rails. Like this has nothing to do with Virginia Woolf and I didn't even look up a one-star review. So I guess I'm, I'm, my shitty book report is even shittier than normal, but The one thing I wanted to mention to any listeners out there is, okay, so I've been talking about how I took this trip back east, right? And I read this incredible book, and I was on the beach, and it's also set in and around lighthouses in the beach. And I was around lighthouses in the beach, so it was all just so perfect. And I was actually thinking about how it was really hard for me to think of this as a book that happened in the UK, because I just kept thinking about it being like, they're Americans and stuff like that. I don't know why, but it's not a very like English book, uh, in my opinion. Um, but another thing that I discovered, okay, so what does a trip home typically mean to people who have moved far away? Uh, a mass of my books are on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And so we're going through this transitional period where uh, we're trying to, like, clean up my grandfather's house. And my family was like, go through your books. And this was my opportunity to send a huge box of books back to myself.
1: Oh, How many did you get?
0: (laughs) Okay, so first of all, it was like it was literally like a fifty pound box. (laughs) When I when I brought it to the post office, they were like, Why didn't you put this in two boxes? (laughs) I was like, didn't have any. So I so I had this big like Home Depot style medium box that was like so fucking heavy. And but one thing I want to put announcement out to our listeners and out to the world and to you, Mark, too. Have you ever heard of a concept of the USPS called media mail?
1: Do you know what that is? Yeah, I used to uh, I used to be an eBay entrepreneur when I was like 15. Mm, Okay, so media mail
0: is the idea that like, you know, freedom of the press and stuff like that. So this giant box of books that I brought to the USPS is like you're almost scared, like, oh, this is going to cost so much money. It's like almost going to cost as much money as if I like bought every book in this box. Like, again, yeah. You know, because when you put it on, like, the weight scale and everything, it's, like, normal mail. This would have cost, like, 130 bucks or something like that or, like, 150 bucks. But if you say this is media mail, which is just – it's, like, a loophole in the system or whatever that it's, like, they have to allow people to send, like, books and certain items, like, DVDs and stuff, like, media-related things. That whole massive box of books that I sent to myself was only $30.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, the – the eBay thing I used to do, that's where mm-hmm. you'd, you'd charge, you know, five bucks for shipping and you it only cost you a buck to send like a, a CD or a book or a DVD or something. Mm-hmm. definitely yeah, so
0: media mail is incredible i didn't know about it until my brother-in-law told me about it he was like make sure you send it media mail and i was like
1: damn <laughs> nice so you got your, your next year of of uh podcasts yeah dude i mean like first
0: of all there's a lot of books in there that are just good that i've already read where i was like oh i want this i want this i want this because it's like that edition but then there's also stuff in there where i'm like oh i need to cover this for the podcast I need to cover this for the podcast so like cool yeah i'm, I'm psyched it's like awesome. I just bought a bunch of books for
1: myself. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. I look sounds forward good. to the uh, next episode. Absolutely.
0: Do you want to the outro?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so this has been another episode of Shitty Brook Reports. Thanks for listening. You can find us every every week, every couple weeks, every whatever. On <laughs> we'll let you know. Spotify, SoundCloud, <laughs> Stitcher iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR, the podcast, no spaces. You can also email us at SBR, the podcast at com. You can send us whatever you got comments, suggestions, uh, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, and see you next time. Oh yeah. You can send us stuff, media mail.
0: Yeah.